I've been talking about and reading about sheep all week long. My conversations included one with Corinth's own resident shepherd. His name is Shane Snyder, and he and his wife, Dana, have about 30 sheep that they raise. So here are some facts about sheep that you might not know. Number one, not all sheep have wool. So Shane and Dana actually raise hair sheep, H-A-I-R, hair sheep, which provide uh, meat and are good for other uses, but there's nothing about their hair that you can use to make into wool clothing. Fact number two, sheep are not stupid. They kind of have a reputation for that, but they're not stupid. God has simply hardwired sheep's brains in a different way. So in the same way you wouldn't say that a two-year-old is stupid, or you wouldn't say someone with a mental disability is is stupid or dumb, that's very unkind. Sheep are hardwired with certain kinds of responses, and among those responses are that they do follow after. They're easily led, and um, among their responses are also the fact that they, they, they tend to bully one another, which leads me to number three. Sheep are not very empathetic, and sometimes they do uh, butt and ram other sheep. They try to become dominant, and they're usually one sheep or ram who is most dominant. In fact, somebody showed me a video after the 8.30 service of a very dominant sheep, not only butting the uh, other sheep, but even uh, an individual who was in the middle of the road while the flock was passing through. So, but, but sheep are not empathetic. Like a mother sheep, if she has three babies, a ewe, will only nurse two of them because she really can't uh, help with all three, and so she just allows the runt to die, basically from starvation. Well, you wouldn't think about doing that if you were a human mother with three babies, but that's part of how she's wired. And within the flock, there's not a lot of empathy. If there's a threat to the flock, the flock will run. Shane describes them as sort of running as a pack, sort of left and right, and they all move together. But they, it's not like they harbor the weak and vulnerable sheep in the middle. They leave them behind. Like, okay, the wolf or whatever threat's coming, it can have the ones that are weak and vulnerable. So sheep are not very empathetic. Sheep ruminate. And here's something that I didn't know until this past week. I got this one from Dr. Carlton, who is a veterinarian. And Dr. Carlton said sheep are one of the animals that have four stomachs. So there are cows and llamas and giraffes and sheep and goats. And one of the stomachs is called a rumen, R-U-M-E-N. And in that stomach, there are millions of bacteria that actually break down the food, the grass or whatever the sheep have been eating, And it's essential to have that stomach, but more than that, it is essential for the sheep to be quiet while it's ruminating. So the passage in the book of Psalms about uh, lying down, he makes me lie down in green pastures, or the reference in Ezekiel, which we read, to sheep lying down, is actually essential not just because they need to sleep, but because of their digestion. So sheep need time to allow their rumen to work, and if it doesn't, if, if they're under stress, there are all sorts of other hormones that keep the food from digesting. So literally, a sheep needs to ruminate in order to digest its food, and that's where the word comes from. Sheep also have little natural defense. So I told you they will uh, try to butt, but it's not like a goat's butt or a, a cow that has uh, with horns or whatever. Like, and they, they can't kick and they don't bite very hard. So sheep have very little natural defense, which again is why sheep need a shepherd. 
Um, they can wander off by themselves. They're just trying to find some food. But when they are scattered, they are particularly vulnerable because if a wolf comes along or some other uh, prey, I mean, they, they can't, you know, climb very well, say like a goat can. So if they get stuck somewhere or they're caught in a thunderstorm and they're frightened, sheep just really don't have a lot of uh, ways to get back to where they're supposed to get if they're caught out somewhere. And they don't have ways to feed themselves. So sheep really do need shepherds, and they need to be kept within the protection of the fold. So the reason you didn't know at least some of that about sheep, and the reason I didn't know about it until this week, is that at best, most of us are several steps away from direct contact with sheep. Wool clothing is less common than it used to be. Synthetic fibers are cheaper and tend to cause fewer irritations. And if you happen to eat a lamb chop, it's probably not your regular diet, right? So we don't really think about sheep, don't come into contact sheep, even with sheep products. By contrast, sheep are dominant in most of the Bible. Sheep-related words like flock and shepherd and lamb and uh, so forth, they are found in two-thirds of the books of the Bible. More than 600 times in the Bible there are references to some sheep-related words, and some of them are very familiar to you. Uh, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. Luke 2, to whom does Jesus send the angel, to whom does the Lord send the angels to announce the birth of Jesus? Right, shepherds. So they're all over the Bible. They're not very much in the writings of Paul, probably because Paul was writing to mostly an urban audience, which, like you and me, wouldn't have quite as much uh, direct contact with sheep. Some ancient cultures disdained shepherds, but not Jews. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David were all shepherds before they became patriarchs and leaders of God's people. So the Jews were not alone, but they certainly were one of the ancient cultures who compared their rulers, their kings and priests, to shepherds. It was an appropriate and well-known metaphor. So as familiar and common as the shepherd metaphor is in the Bible, it's not at all surprising for us to find in this very visual prophet, Ezekiel, who loves to lay out the word pictures, whether he's doing so in street theater or in mime, or actually just in stories, it's not at all surprising to find Ezekiel taking an entire chapter of his prophecy, chapter 34, to talk about sheep and shepherds. So, we move into the hopeful part of Ezekiel's prophecy. Jerusalem has fallen, so a lot of the first part of the book is predicting that event, and it's going to be terrible. But now that Jerusalem has fallen, Ezekiel wants to restore some hope for the people. The Jewish people had believed that the fall of Jerusalem was not only improbable, but impossible. So now that it's happened, okay, where's God and what's God going to do? So that's the rest of the book. But it doesn't feel like hope when chapter 34 opens. It feels like more judgment, especially if you're one of Israel's leaders. You're going like, mm, this, I thought this was supposed to be good news. Well, you can't read it through the lens of the leaders. You have to read it through the lens of the people. So if you have been oppressed by people, if you are living in Germany after Hitler uh, is assassinated, if you're living in Iraq after Saddam Hussein is captured, if you're living in the Soviet Union when it begins to crumble apart and freedom rises around, then you can understand why people would say, like, yeah, it's really good news when the leaders are judged, the leaders, the oppressors are judged. And that's the message of the first part of chapter 34. 
And at first reading, when you read Ezekiel 34, you might find a certain sense of irony because the shepherds are told that they are eating the flock. Well, isn't that why you raise sheep for meat? Uh, They're fleecing the flock. Isn't that why you raise sheep to have their wool? So what's going on with this rebuke? And the truth is that most shepherds, the ones of whom Ezekiel is writing here metaphorically, did not actually own the sheep. So that's a clear distinction. There's a difference between a shepherd and an owner, although sometimes they're the same person. More often than not, they're different. So the owner, as his flock grows, is going to hire shepherds to take care of the sheep for the owner's purposes. And even though they're not his property, a faithful shepherd bonds with the sheep. He watches for those who wander off. He doesn't want any of the owner's sheep to be lost. He notices those who are sick or wounded or neglected by the rest of the flock. He personally feeds that runt that has been rejected by the ewe. The sheep trust the shepherd. They know his voice and they come when he calls. He vigilantly watches for predators and the shepherd will even sacrifice his own life to fight off a predator as we know from the stories of David in particular with the lion and the bear. The shepherd knows when the sheep need to eat and when the supply of food in front of them is depleted and he needs to find new pasture. He knows when they need to drink and he will go find them fresh water and the shepherd knows when they need to ruminate, when they just need to rest and allow their food to digest. So the shepherd-sheep connection is actually a closer and more personal bond than the shepherd-owner connection, and that's why the shepherd becomes such a powerful metaphor. So what we have in the first uh, 10 verses of Ezekiel 34, not all of which we read, is a severe indictment of the kings and priests of Israel who had forgotten or willfully neglected what it means to be a shepherd, particularly an under-shepherd. So... These shepherds would slaughter the very best sheep for their evening meal and discard their leftovers or the wool or whatever while neglecting those who had wandered off in the week and certainly not protecting them from predators. And in the same way, Ezekiel says, the leaders of Israel have exploited the people for their own comfort and prosperity. The sheep had been abused and neglected. They had been plundered and scattered. Every single Jew, every person in the ancient nomadic pastoral world would understand this analogy. This situation is grave. Sheep scatter when they are neglected and unprotected. Any shepherd who allows that to happen deserves the judgment and wrath of the owner. To Ezekiel's original readers, this indictment feels the same. So if you have a hard time connecting with this, it feels the same to them as if we were to talk about a coach who had sexually abused some of the players or an orphanage that sold the orphans into the slave market or an accountant who embezzled from the firm. It's the same idea. This wasn't yours. These these people, these persons, these things did not belong to you. And instead, you have plundered them for your own advantage. You have taken advantage. And so it's clear why then there's such an indictment on these shepherds, these leaders of Israel, their kings and priests. Leadership, especially 
Delegated leadership is a sobering task. It's a heavy burden. And when you accept the burden, you are not only accepting responsibility for the sheep, you are accepting accountability to the owner. And in every generation, people find ways to exploit and neglect and abuse those they lead. And Ezekiel is calling out these leaders of Israel who have brought the people to this place of judgment. And that leads us to the good news, beginning in verse 11. So again, we're talking to the sheep. And we know, first of all, that God is going to judge those who are primarily responsible for the judgment that has fallen. But now God says to the sheep, I'm going to give you a hopeful message. And the hopeful message begins with what the sovereign Lord is going to do. This is a theme in the book of Ezekiel. I am the sovereign Lord. You will know that I am the sovereign Lord. These are the names of God, Yahweh and Elohim, put together. I'm powerful, I'm personal, and I'm taking charge here. Ezekiel had already seen these visions of glory with the eyes all around, the whirling wheels and the strange creatures. God knows everything. He's in control of everything. And he is now going to take personal responsibility for his flock. So what's going on here is somewhat analogous to what happened in the story of Starbucks, the uh, coffee chain. Howard Schultz founded the company as we know it in 1988. And he served as its CEO until the year 2000 when sales, particularly sales at existing stores, were declining so rapidly that Schultz retook the reign after stepping away for eight years, and in 2008, he stepped back into the CEO role, and he closed hundreds of weak stores and closed all the stores long enough to retrain people on how to make espresso. So think about that. Like, I'm going to teach you how to redo what you're supposed to do. So this is what happens when the CEO says, these under-shepherds are not doing their job. He fired a lot of executives. I'm stepping back in and taking personal responsibility. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, the owner of this flock of Israel says, I'm stepping back in and I'm going to personally care for this flock. Verse 11, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Verse 12, I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. That's a reference to the fall of Jerusalem, which would have been the stormiest day in Israel's history. They were scattered. I'm going after them. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the nations and into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in the settlements of the land. Verse 14, I will tend them in good pasture. And again, 14, they will lie down. We would read, they would ruminate in good grazing land and will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. Verse 16, I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Verse 16, again, the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The Hebrew word is mishvat, with judgment. And it's, it's all tied up in like, I'm going to do the right thing here, and those who have been exploiting will be held accountable. So the chapter goes on after our reading with Kevin ended in verse 16, and there's more of what God will do because not all of the problem is the shepherds. There are sheep who are abusing other sheep, and God says, I'm going to deal with them as well. 
and I will exercise on those who are abusing other sheep because of their great power. God is going to step in with judgment, and the end result will be safety and prosperity and even fame for the nation of Israel as they return to their greatness. And then the metaphor switches a little at the end of the chapter, and it's stig- but it's still agriculture. So the land has experienced metaphorically drought, and he says, therefore, there's scarcity in the crops, and he promises to them, there will be showers of blessing. I was thinking about that on my way to church today. Like, you, you can experience this, right? What is it like after a, a long drought to see the rain? And yeah, it, it, it's kind of inconvenient on a Sunday morning, uh, and maybe some people slept in because, you know, it's raining. But think about it, what, what it's like to actually walk out and feel rain after a long drought. And maybe for some of you, like for me, it brings to mind a song, a gospel song we used to sing. There shall be showers of blessing, showers of blessing. How many knew that song? Like, oh, that's more than I thought. So good. So, but that song was inspired by these words. And again, they're words of promise and blessing and restoration that God is giving to his people. So the main point of chapter 34, let me just review and then I'm going to get to some application here. The main point is that God is firing the under-shepherds and he's taking personal control of the flock, which raises the question, how exactly does God do that? So if you're thinking about the Israelites... There are moments in, time, in their story where God intervenes personally. So there's the pillar of cloud and the fire at night where God directly guides them. That's what a shepherd does. There were moments when God gave them manna and food. That's what a shepherd does. He guides the flock and provides for the flock. There were even moments in their recent history where God protected the flock, which is what a shepherd does. So when the Assyrians came and, and, and took the northern kingdom into captivity, when they got to Jerusalem, there was a miracle that saved Jerusalem under the Assyrians, but not under the Babylonians. So exactly how does God say, I'm going to gather all of my, what does it mean for God to get personally involved in his people. So he says in verse 23, he gives us a hint, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them and be my shepherd. But what does that mean? David's been dead for 400 years. In my preaching through the book of Ezekiel, I have said repeatedly that it is a mistake to make too close of a connection between Ezekiel's time and his message and ours. And what I mean by that is America is not Israel, and the event around which the book of Ezekiel revolves, which is the fall of Jerusalem, is a unique event inside and outside the pages of the Bible. So to to say everything there is exactly the same about us, to my way of thinking, is a mistake and might lead you into some wrong ways to read these texts. But this God is our God. So what is it about this God that we learn? Now, when people read the prophecies of Ezekiel, particularly the prophecies of hope in this chapter and the ones to come, uh, there are three basic ways to interpret these uh, promises of restoration. Number one, some people believe this is Israel literally being brought into their land. So some would say it's when they came back in the 5th century under the Persians. Others would say it's the 20th century when Israel is gathered from all over the world 
and Israel becomes a nation again in 1947. So that's a fulfillment of this prophecy that God would give them their land back. For others, it's a very spiritual prophecy. That is to say, we in the church are the fulfillment of this prophecy. And you and I, where we sit, are God restoring his kingdom, his rule over the earth. We are what Ezekiel was talking about. And then there are those who believe that this is not about Israel and it's not about the church, that all of that actually diminishes what Ezekiel is talking about. What he's talking about is the future kingdom after Christ comes back that there will be a millennial kingdom, a, a rule of God on earth, and Israel will again be restored fully, and the temple will function again, and, and the Messiah will be in charge. So those are three primary ways to read these prophecies of restoration, and it may or may not surprise you that I don't feel the need to choose one of them. And the good news is if one of them is yours, I'm not going to try to correct you. You can hold on to it. It's all right with me. What I want to focus on is who God is in Ezekiel. What do we learn about God from this promise in Ezekiel 34? And what I see is a shepherd's heart. A shepherd loves and seeks and feeds and protects and guides. A shepherd is always thinking about what's best for the sheep. King David, the consummate shepherd in the Bible, ruminated much on this subject and wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. When I was uh, studying for my doctor of ministry a number of years ago at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, one of my primary professors was a man by the name of Tim Laniak. Dr. Laniak, uh, well, his, his fame at Corinth relates to the fact that when he came back from a visit to Israel, he brought some little clay oil lamps. And I thought they were really cool. So at our Monday Thursday service, I had all my disciples use like actual real Middle Eastern oil lamps. And it turned out to be the biggest blaze this sanctuary has known in all of my 25 years. Those who were there remember it well. So the biggest fire in the history of Corinth Church inside the building, I blame on Dr. Linia. But he's known for more than that. The reason he had been in Israel for that uh, time period was he was actually choosing to live among and be among the, the Bedouin, the, the shepherds. Because he said shepherds today in Israel and Jordan basically shepherd the same way that they did 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, except for the small fact that they often have cell phones. But in terms of how they take care of their sheep, it's the same methodology. So he wanted to get to know them and understand shepherding through their world. And he came back and he wrote two books. And one of them that's really very accessible and a wonderful devotional book, particularly for leaders, is called While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. And it's, it has, if you like pictures, it's wonderful. Mark Thomas up here is in a doctor of ministry program now in Christian leadership. And he found that book as part of their curriculum. The one that's a little bit more difficult uh, because it's scholarly and no pictures, like, sorry, is the one called Shepherds After My Own Heart. I love this book because of one quote that is the most memorable one for me. And what Dr. Laniac said was this. And he was talking about Ezekiel. It's his chapter on Ezekiel. The divine preference for human agency is amazingly resilient. So let me say it again, but I realize that's a quote you have to unpack a little bit. The divine preference for human agency 
is amazingly resilient. So what he meant by that is there are many times in the Bible, and Ezekiel 34 is one of those places where God says, you've got bad shepherds, I'm getting rid of your bad shepherds. But what does God say? He said, I'm going to bring you David, like I'm going to bring you another human shepherd. And what he says to the Israelites is, I've, I've taken away your bad leaders, and I'm going to replace them with myself, but the way I'm going to do it is to give you new leaders who will be better. So the divine preference to put people in charge is amazingly resilient. Wouldn't you think at some point God would say, I'm giving up on people. I don't want any more people leaders. But he doesn't do that. He keeps coming back. The, the God's resilience is his resilience of entrusting leadership to humans. The divine preference for human agency is amazingly resilient. That was powerful for me. And I look at John chapter 10 through that lens. So this is another one of the famous shepherd passages in the Bible. And what's John chapter 10 all about? Jesus shows up, and whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tends to use more kingdom language, in John chapter 10, he makes the same point with shepherd language. And Jesus says, I'm your shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, most the Pharisees and others who were listening to him immediately thought he's blaspheming. Why? Because of Ezekiel 34. God says, I will be the good shepherd. And when Jesus shows up and says, I'm the good shepherd, they're going like, no, you can't be the good shepherd. And then he adds another layer of offense when he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jews then and now believe that the, the phrase dead Messiah is an oxymoron. Messiahs don't die. They live and rule and range and change the world. So the Jews find another reason to reject him because he's a good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. But Jesus continues on with that. So now notice, he has shown up and said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one Ezekiel was talking about. I will go after the strays. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. I will take care of my sheep. I will call them by name. They will know me. And then he turns around just maybe weeks later and says to his disciples, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you. And what does he say to the disciples? It's actually good for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be the shepherd that you want, that you need, that you love, that you crave. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Well, let me ask you a question. How does the Holy Spirit shepherd us? The divine preference for human agency is amazingly resilient. So the Holy Spirit comes and he founds the church. And friends, you and I are the way in which Jesus shepherds his flock. He comes back again. He says, I'm going to appoint for you shepherds and you will shepherd one another in my church. So I want, you to, I want to point your attention, sorry choir, to the front of the pulpit. Because uh, on the front of the pulpit, not the banner, but the pulpit itself, is a depiction of a shepherd with a sheep. It's supposed to remind you and me, every Sunday when I come here, this is my primary job. It is to shepherd God's flock. And it is a huge responsibility that I bear, but it's one that I accepted 25 years ago. I am the shepherd of those God has brought to Corinth Church. And I want to talk to you for a moment because every once in a while I hear from someone who says, you're not doing a good job being my shepherd, or the church is not shepherding me well. I've fallen through the cracks. 
I don't speak for a moment to those of you who have felt that or heard that with three brief words when you feel you are not being shepherded well by me or by us. And the first word is, I need to know that. So I make my cell phone and my email address readily available to people because I need to know I'm not Jesus. I don't know when people feel neglected. And particularly in a church the size that we have grown to be, it's hard to keep up with individuals. And the only way I know if sheep feel neglected is if they tell me. And I will tell you that about once every other week, maybe somebody says to me, directly or indirectly, I felt neglected by my church and my pastor. Number one thing is I, I, I need to know, and you have to tell me. Number two thing I want you to know about that is it hurts me. Not in the sense of like you shouldn't tell me, it, 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 it grieves me. I, I want to be a shepherd who takes care of his sheep. And I will tell you that I'm not wired for empathy, like I didn't, I don't know if it's genetics or my early environment, but years ago especially, I would have said like, I'm not a very empathetic person, but being in ministry for 40 years has taught me how to grieve, particularly for those who feel lost and vulnerable and weak, and it deeply grieves me, hurts me when I know that somebody that I'm charged to care for is not being cared for. So the third message I want to give to you is I want to try again. So when you hear about that, I need you to let me know because I want to be there. Now, in a church of this size, I can't personally be there. So people say, like, Corinth has gotten too big to take care of its flock. And the bad news is that's true. Like, one pastor can't shepherd everyone. But here's the good news about being in a church this large. We have a whole army of shepherds. And I'm not just talking about pastors or paid staff or even elders. I'm talking about small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and mentors and Stephen ministers and other spiritual leaders who really love when they know someone needs a shepherd, who love to shepherd. So I want to know, I need to know, it grieves me, and I want to try again when there are sheep who are not being cared for because I bear the ultimate responsibility for the care of the sheep in this flock. Now, you may say, well, that sounds like sort of a, a, a self-serving or self-centered message, but I have a larger point because w- the people I really want to talk to today are not the ones that feel under-shepherded by me or less shepherded by me. The people I really want to talk to today are the ones that go like, what is this thing about God being my shepherd, about Jesus being my shepherd? Because I don't feel that Jesus is taking very good care of me. Like I ask him to intervene, I want him to step in, I talk to him, he doesn't talk back, I have layer after layer after layer of pain in my life, and he doesn't come after me the way he promised he would. So to those of you who might be feeling that, I want to offer the same three messages. The first message is not that God needs to know or wants to know or you can dial him. The first message is that God already knows. So if in the challenges of your particular life, you're going like, I don't really think God knows. Oh, yes, he does. Those eyes that see all and everywhere, he absolutely knows your pain and what you're going through. He knows. Second message is it grieves him. God grieves with those 
who feel that level of deep pain. He knows, he understands, and one of the reasons he stepped into our world was so that we could never say, God doesn't understand loneliness, God doesn't understand criticism, God doesn't understand rejection, God doesn't understand pain, God doesn't understand death. He knows, he grieves, he understands, it hurts him. But third, the message is God's resilient. He is his, God's resilience. He is resilient. He is still coming after you. But the divine preference for human agency is amazingly resilient. So you probably feel that God has let you down, at least in part, because human beings have let you down. And the people you thought you could count on for a caring ear or eyes or hands or arms to embrace you, to hold you, to say it's going to be okay, the people that you thought might be there for you have not been. But the, the divine preference for human agency is amazingly resilient. I've often said that when Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, you can't always hold on to faith or hope, but you can always see love when you open yourself up to the love that's around you. And it may be in something, you know, uh, in the natural world, it may be in a sunset or sunrise or uh, the beauty of a particular scene, but almost without fail, not necessarily in the time that you want it, God will come through with a person who will remind you again, I thought I was forgotten, but he still knows and he still cares. We want to know why did God why did God put me through this? I'm just an under-shepherd. I don't answer questions like that. I will tell you that people that have been through times of great dryness and darkness come out of it saying God was reshaping me or he was redirecting me or he was simply teaching me to trust and depend on him or he was preparing me to be a shepherd for someone else and I couldn't do that without having experienced the pain of my own. But I do want you to know that God is resilient in caring for you, and he will keep seeking you, keep pursuing you, keep loving you until he brings you home forever to his flock. Would you pray with me, please? And first, in just a moment of quiet, just lay down your own burden of being forgotten or neglected or rejected by someone and maybe even by God. Just name it before him in quiet prayer. And then name before him the ways in which you have at times not been a faithful shepherd where there was somebody who needed you and you neglected or maybe even exploited them. That's a point of confession today as well.